0: Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on
1: LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history... We'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields and, most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks, where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you so much to my talented co-host Pete Smith for filling in for the last couple of weeks while I wasn't well. Um, What a fantastic job he did. I really enjoyed listening to those podcasts because, of course, doing them on his own, I hadn't heard them. And getting the opportunity to go and listen to Pete actually walking the battlefields was, you know, there was a, a large streak of jealousy in there that Pete can get out and stroll the battlefields. But gee, what a wonderful experience. If you haven't listened to those last couple of episodes where Pete was out live on the battlefields exploring in real time. The battlefields and particularly the 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 caves of nor of uh Jeez, oh, geez i've said that i've made a good meal of that pete i'm gonna give up completely and just introduce my co-host pete <laughs> now that's right isn't it yeah
1: your pronunciation of french is you've obviously caught that off me or lack of pronunciation of, uh, <laughs> I, used of yeah. I used to be yeah. able to do it i
0: used to be able to do it but pete welcome back to the show thank you for thank you for
1: carrying the load while i was away no, it was good fun, and uh, something that uh, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll continue uh, getting out there and doing some literal rec- recordings while we're, we're walking the ground.
0: Yeah, we'll do more and more, and uh, my, my mangled French there was talking about the caves at Naor, the underground city where the soldiers um, visited as tourists, basically, during the First World War, and left their mark, literally, by writing their names on the walls of the caves, which we can now go and see today. Just an extraordinary place. I've loved visiting there. I was, had the privilege of visiting there with you, Pete. Couple of years ago now, and um, just an extraordinary place. That was a really wonderful podcast.
1: Hey, it's one of those places that you get hooked uh, in going back to and, and looking at the names, and you just want to know more about the people that sign their names there. And there's not been a great deal of research done on the British soldiers that signed their names, mainly because they're a little bit more difficult to research. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm having a crack at doing a few more. So I, it's fascinating. It's uh, there's years of research in there. One of the things that I think I don't know if we've we mentioned it in the uh, in the podcast, but there there a group of, uh, of American airmen that signed their names there as well, and uh, Americans have become quite
0: excited about uh, some of the, some of their their men signing their names in there. It's great, just another of the unsolved mysteries the first world war keeps delivering up to us. there's so many more of these stories to to tell um the feedback, thank you to everyone who sent us feedback about that episode because we could, we did get a lot because it was a little bit different to what we've done before and a lot of feedback. And a lot of feedback along the lines of a little bit different to your normal episodes, but really enjoyable. So I, I think that summed it up really well, Pete.
1: Yeah, it's good. That's, uh, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's uh, I think we'll try and find
0: uh, some more similar, similar uh, type sites to, to visit. Excellent. I look forward to hearing those and to actually walk in the ground with you when we're allowed to travel again. But today we're heading to, again, a story that's probably not so well known. We're heading to a very important First World War site, but we're telling a Second World War story. Tell us a little bit about what we're doing in Amiens today. Well, we're going to be starting off at the railway station, and, and we're going to be covering a raid, a Mosquito
1: Squadron raid uh, on the prison known as Operation Jericho. It's one of those stories. I think I remember my father telling me about it years and years ago. And I have to say, Amiens is a, a pickup point for doing the uh, exploring the battlefields of the First World War. And uh, on the route in and on the route out, you actually go past the prison. And I must have gone past it, oh, I don't know, 20 30 50 times or, or more, before I just glance to my right as. I I was driving in one morning and, and realised that there was a the bricks were a different colour in an area and it was in a V-shape, which obviously kind of was trying to show you something. And what it's trying to show you is uh, where the walls were blown out in that area during the raid. So it's commemorated on the outside of the prison. It is still a prison, interestingly enough. It was a prison before the uh, the Second World War and, and it's still a prison today. So, uh, yeah, so noticed it and, and thought, hang on a minute, I remember my father talking about a raid on Amiens prison and, uh, and then looking it up and... It, it now has become part of uh, of my tour when I'm uh, exploring the battlefields first or Second World War. Then we always stop and have a quick chat about uh, about what was known as Operation Jericho. So today we're going to be walking from the railway station. It's only about a five kilometre walk up uh, up a main boulevard uh, around the corner and to to
0: the prison. And we'll, we'll be chatting as we uh, as we walk. It's I think one of the things we all love about the Second World War. Okay, love's not quite the right word, but the thing that we are all fascinated about by the Second World War. It's just these stories of daring do, these these raids, these incredible use of technology. I mean, it really was a conflict where, where the great minds stretched to new and interesting areas, wasn't it? And this is a, an absolutely perfect example of. of, of- of that exactly, well, I think it also brings people to the fore as well. Uh group captain,
1: uh, Percy uh, uh, Picard, known as Pic Picard, uh, he was the, uh, the the man that led the raid. Unfortunately, he will lose his uh, life as we'll learn later on. Um, but he, he was a character in his own right. You know, he was a, a very flamboyant uh, uh, character, uh, uh, and and uh, yeah, and I think these kind of actions suit these men. These men that are are flamboyant and. Uh, uh, yeah, and, yeah so,
0: so an interesting chap in his own right, as we'll learn. Well, let's start with a really important question. Why are a bunch of British aircraft bombing the walls of a prison in a French town?
1: Well, that is a question that actually at one time I would have answered and said, uh, and, and it, it will be the story that I'm going to tell you. But it, there's some doubts now. It's, uh, it will become apparent as, we're, as we tell this story. There's some doubts as to why the raid took place. So what I'm going to do is explain, first of all, why the raid, you know, the general, for years, the general view of why the raid took place. It's to free prisoners. It's to free prisoners who are going to be executed It was supposed to have been a request by the resistance, could you try and free these prisoners, they're all going to be executed so we've got nothing to lose if some are killed in the raid. And uh, what they're asking uh, the RAF to do is to basically take out the walls, drop a bomb by the side of the prison, blow the doors off effectively... Uh, hit the accommodation block for the the guards and anything else, uh, uh, the the mess hall for the guards, and try and kill as many guards as possible and and give as many of the resistance men or anybody else that's in there, because, of course, it is a prison. There are your general day-to-day prisoners in there as well, uh, criminals. But to let everybody uh, uh, get out, two things. It will save their lives um it will also mean that the germans have to tie down some troops in trying to check uh, to trying to uh, to gather them in this is taking place uh, i haven't said the date I don't think this is taking place um in uh, 19 44 the 18th of february so it's the start of the build up to d day uh, and certainly one of the stories that goes with this is that one of the guys in the may have some information that is relevant to the to D-Day, and so so that's one of the reasons why we have to get him out of there in case he gets tortured and the information gets uh, uh, extracted from him. So there's all sorts of these little stories that go with it, some of which have been proven to not be true, some of which are true, but it doesn't really matter because the important thing is the raid did take place, uh, and it was a success. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We can see the hole in the wall as we go past it. But, uh, it was a success. So it's a it's a fascinating Little, little sideline almost of the of the history of the Second World War. Just a, just a, a, you know, a, a few hours, and then then it was over. But very important, very important for this accurate bombing because this, is, of course, is new. Uh, but really, really accurate bombing. You know, taking out the wall of a prison.
0: Well, let's talk about the city of Armion as well because it's very well known to people who visit the Somme region to to follow the First World War exploits in that area. It was absolutely vital to what went on during the First World War, particularly in nineteen eighteen. Talk to us a little bit about Armion and then let's talk about something it doesn't it isn't well known for, which was its significance during the Second World War.
1: Yeah, well, the significance really is the same for first and second world war. It's on it's on a river, and most important cities tend to be on rivers. It's on a route towards Paris, so again, in both wars, it's uh, it's a, a blocking point or has the potential to be a blocking point. It's so it's main uh, railway lines. There's a rail network connected to it, a road network, and even a canal network. So it's a, an important hub. Uh, both in both world wars, the trade, uh, the major profession of people living and, and working in the city was to do with the production of uh, cloth, so it's weaving. Um, long long gone, actually, it uh, it kind of came to an end in the 1950s, so there's very little weaving, uh, I think, if any takes place in Amiens, but that's where the wealth of it, uh, you know, the wealth of the city came from, was weaving. Um, it's the capital of Picardy. And uh, a population now of about 134,000 people live in the city. So it's a big city. It's it's my capital city for, for this region. So it's where I would go, uh, certainly when we uh, we have to, uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it be changing a car or, uh, or, or getting uh, well, almost all the big forms that you need to live in France, then you would get them from,
0: uh, if you live in this area, from Amiens. Um, and your Fr- your French president, of course, is from Amiens as well.
1: He is indeed, uh, and uh, yeah, in fact, on the road that we're going to walk up, you'll see uh, his name, uh, Macron, uh, on one of the uh, one of the shop fronts. It's no, it's a defunct shop; doesn't exist anymore. But it's obviously was a family uh, a family uh, run concern, and it's his name is on on the wall there. So yes, uh, famous people from Amiens, well, him, really, and, uh, and one other, uh, Jules Verne. Uh, he lived there for a lot of his life in Amiens, and you'll find that a lot of uh, things uh, around the city are named after him. So we have the, uh, the bypass around the city, is the Jules Verne bypass, uh, a bridge over the Somme, the Jules Verne uh, uh, bridge. So yeah, his name appears, uh, Jules Verne Theatre, I think. Uh, they use his name a lot.
0: Well, let's, um, let's begin our walk, Pete, because it's uh, the, we're going to stroll through the city of Armion. It's a great city to stroll through. I, I, I really enjoy visiting Armion, Really a lovely place down by the River Somme, the incredible cathedral. If you go to Armion, go down to the Somme and have a beer and a meal down by the river and go and see the absolutely incredible cathedral in the centre of town, just iconic, one of the most impressive in France. It's a beautiful city. Let's begin walking through it, Pete, and telling the story of Operation Jericho.
1: Okay, well, we're standing in front of the railway station, so I'd better say a little bit about the railway station, because railway stations are always in the centre of the city, or tend to be, and, and this, one, this one is. Um, it's, uh, and because of that, it was bombed during the Second World War, uh, and uh, destroyed totally by long-range shelling in, in the First World War. So I think we'll start with a quick whiz through the First World War uh, on Amiens. Um, so I often used to think that Amiens wasn't overly... because it was, it was only very briefly captured in 1914, and then just, uh, the population came back, and uh, the Germans never got to it again but in 1918 then they they get fairly close uh, they get as close as Villa's bretina which involves Australians fighting and holding them at Villa's bretina but they also then start building some very big guns they bring up a railway gun known as the Amiens gun and they shell the city and they bomb the city on a, on a regular a regular basis. And, um, yeah, I used to quite kind of glibly say, oh, oh it, uh, it wasn't that badly damaged. And I suppose compared to Eap, which was almost completely flattened and my village flattened, a lot of the villages flattened. Uh, but there were 152 uh, kills, civilians killed in the town, and 213 were wounded. Uh, and, and then the, the actual material damage, 731 buildings were totally destroyed. So that's an awful lot of uh, of damage and 3,000 very badly damaged. So it's, uh, it, the destruction of the city in 1914-18 uh, was quite considerable. But it's by far worse in the Second World War, because it is very firmly in the way in 1940 in the way of, uh, of the Germans trying to get to Paris. And so it was very heavily bombed during uh, June of 1940, during the Battle of Amiens. Uh, and uh, during the Battle of France in the May of 1940, it heavily bombed again. And then the German 1st Panzer Division uh, entered the city on the, uh, uh, on the 18th of, uh, of May. Um, so, so uh, yeah, a lot of fighting and fighting going on, along around the city for quite some time. And in fact, French guns uh, shelled it in the June of 1940 because the Germans are in the city, um, and uh, and British were there as well. The British uh, were were back here after having fought around uh, the uh, the city in the First World War, and the uh, the Seventh Battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment fought uh, to defend the town, and they they were there as well. So we have a, a very big rail, uh, rail goods yard uh, at a place called Longo, just outside the city, and uh, that also took a, a lot of bombing uh, in the June of 1944. And this is because uh, uh, from that area and from other areas in France, they would resupply, the Germans would resupply down to the Normandy front, uh, where the, the D-Day landings have taken place. So it was essential that we uh, that we stopped the Germans from resupplying down there and so we took out the rail network and of course sadly some of that, those bombs fell on the city as well, so uh, uh, very badly bombed. I tried to find the actual casualties for civilian casualties in the Second World War and I can't find them. Uh, the French don't like, and this is very a big generalisation, but they don't like talking about the Second World War. It's, it is one of those things that divides society in France. So yes there are books written, yes there are societies that do research, but generally speaking it's, it's not easy to find that Information when you're looking for, for, things like casualty figures. But uh, yes, it uh, a lot of civilians killed in the the, the Allied bombing of uh, of the real uh, the real network in. Uh, around Amiens, uh, and eventually, on the uh, thirty-first of August, nineteen forty-four, it was liberated by the Eleventh uh, Armored Division of Thirty Corps, and they're they're heading. Uh, they're famous for their trying to get to to Arnhem. Um, that's what a lot of people remember: Thirty Corps trying to the tanks trying to get through to the paratroopers at the bridges of Arnhem. But liberated, uh, as I say, on the thirty-first of August, nineteen forty-four.
0: There's a couple of interesting things, Pete, there about the Second World War that I want to focus on. Firstly, this concept that these towns were the the, the seesawing nature of the fighting. So in 1940, the Germans came through and obviously attacked the town as they came through and captured it and then were successful in capturing it as they had not been during the First World War. Um, But then, of course, the Allies retaliating, trying to get the town back, trying to hold the Germans. So the town being shelled and bombed again. So just the, the if you're a civilian there, there would have been bombs falling on you just about every day. The only thing that changed was where those bombs were manufactured just must have been the the, the seesawing nature. And then the, again, the, the fighting returns in 1944. Again, the, the town attacked by the Allies, then heavy fighting to secure it. Just just how... I don't, I don't think we quite comprehend how badly some of these lesser known cities were, were knocked around during the Second World War. We know all about the Blitz on London. We know all about, you know, obviously Dresden being flattened and all of these terrible stories about the cities that were were obliterated. But just about every major centre in, in Western Europe was, uh, was affected, wasn't it? Yeah, it was indeed, and uh, interestingly I've been doing a little bit of work in the villages
1: in the rear areas here, to, to do with the First World War uh, mainly, but uh, what I've also been looking at are the war memorials and it's amazing the number of civilian casualties from the Second World War who lost their lives during that period in 1944 as we retook the, uh, these villages from the Germans, and you can, you can see what's happening, they're getting excited and they come out into the streets to celebrate the arrival of the of the allies and and then get themselves killed by one side or the other um so yeah very sad uh and it it you do have to sometimes just sit back and think about the french and what they went through during this period and and how it affected them for the future and perhaps sometimes what their viewpoint of uh, of the british and the americans are because we do cause an awful lot of deaths in in france
0: uh, at, at various times i've got some family members in the french city of nantes and uh the grandmother, before she passed away, talked um, when she was a young girl living in the town and spoke with horror about not the German occupation, not 1940 when the Germans first arrived. The bit she spoke about with horror was the bombing, particularly in, in 1944 as the, uh, as the Allies um, softened up France for the invasion in the lead up to D-Day. And that was the bit that shocked her. And she burst into tears telling me about the bodies lying in the street. After Allied bombing raids, just a you know, horrific time for. Obviously, <laughs> it's a silly thing to say. Just we we can't comprehend what the, what the civilians went through in Europe during the Second World War.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's very hard to. I, I try sometimes, and you know, especially with, because I live in France and I, I, I think about the farmer that lived in this house uh, during, during the Second World War and what he saw. And, and I'm aware of, uh, of what happened in, in this area. And yeah, you do wonder how, how this is about. But people do. People manage. People get by. People continue to, to, to live and to, to thrive in some cases. Uh, but yeah, it must have been, must have been fairly tough.
0: Something else you mentioned, Pete, was that um, it was British troops that came through and liberated the town in 1944. Was there any, have you seen in your research any connection between the British soldiers of the Second World War? I mean, Armion is such an icon from the First World War. They must have grown up with their fathers telling them stories about being in Armion and seeing the cathedral and, and walking through the streets of Armion during the First World War. Is there any record of British soldiers when they came back through this area? noting the significance of the town to the First World War? Yeah, what you'll find because uh, in 1940, when the BEF
1: came to France and we have the Phony War, then we occupied this area. This is an area that uh, was under British control again. There were there were petrol dumps and uh, training establishments here, and and an awful lot of the older soldiers in the army, the instructors, the sergeants, the senior NCOs, were First World War veterans. So these are guys actually coming back to their battlefields that they had fought, uh, fought over in the First World War. Now, as we're forced back to Dunkirk and then eventually Across the, uh, the the channel, most of those guys who had uh, who had fought in the First World War and then fought uh, in that uh, that period in 1940 are put into training jobs. So by the time we get to 1944 and our return, then there will be very few people who would actually have uh, had been here either in 1940 or in 1914-18. But certainly, it, it was in the British psyche that the, the battles of the Somme, Passchendaele, all of those uh, those well known actions that that they would have been Spoken about, talked about as children, uh, then they uh, they would have then been very much aware of uh, of where they were as they crossed the cemeteries. The cemeteries the most, I suppose, iconic for everybody. The most iconic sights that you see as you're crossing those those white stones, uh, those white headstones, uh, and the the cross of sacrifice so so visible and so well known. Then these guys, as they as they whistle by on tanks or in vehicles, would have known exactly where they were and must have made them feel odd. I suppose uh, knowing. That their fathers in some cases had fought fought in the same area.
0: And something else, Pete, that um that I didn't understand is we always assumed that during the Second World War a town like Armion was bombed and damaged and destroyed. And I always just imagined that they just sat in that state until after the war. In the nineteen fifties, people came back and rebuilt them. But but you told me that the reconstruction of the town of Amiens began during the war. Talk to me about that. Well, you have to remember that the Germans,
1: once they'd taken France, uh, are building the Atlantic Wall. So they're they this is this is new Germany. This is the the expansionism of Germany. This is a, a, a now uh, a place they control and they want to hang on to it. But but it's more than that. They, this is now that their their city Amiens is their city, and so they are they're actually uh, clearing the roads of any bomb damage that had taken place in that period in in 1940 they're they're planning the the layout of the city rebuilding it and in fact they're actually using a, a french architect a, a chap called pierre Dufo, who um started planning the rebuilding of the city in 1942 and i find that fascinating that he'd been literally re- recruited uh, by the uh, by the germans to rebuild the the town
0: well as we Leave the railway station, Pete. Where are we going to walk to next in the town? Right, so we're going to head out to the
1: railway station. I just should say, by the way, the railway station, if you're interested in uh, 1950s architecture, is, is classic kind of brutalism. Who is it? Brutalism. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a very uh, interesting railway station, and opposite it we have, and it was built at the same time, a, a tower. Uh, I, I tend to call it a sauce bottle. It is not a particularly attractive tower, but it's in the same style as as the railway uh, railway station. So if you're interested in uh, 1950s brutalism, a lot of concrete. Uh, but it has been uh, improved in the last ten years. They built a great big glass uh, dome over or, or roof over the the plaza uh, the the uh, the, the place in front of the railway station. That's where we're going to start. So that's uh, I think it's quite attractive. They have fountains and things there, so it's uh, quite relaxing, very safe. It's it's a, a safe railway station and they're not not they're always the, the best railway stations but this one always feels uh, okay to me
0: the tower the, the tower in Armion is a funny thing isn't it Pete? because it's so it's, it is just so weird i mean it's actually quite impressive that in 1955 they were building these needle thin very very tall apartment blocks and it's um it's it's a bizarre sight you're right it's very ugly no one likes it it's such an icon as you drive into it because we go out we spend when we do a tour we go out spend the day on the battlefields and then often stay in Armion. So we return to the city at the end of a long day. And as you approach it, you just see this huge, huge, ugly tower towering over the uh, over the city. But it's bizarre. You're right. It it doesn't look modern. It looks very old and it is very old. And it's just a, a very strange thing.
1: Well, in researching for this uh, podcast, apparently it's been it's been totally renovated inside. So I'd love to have a look at one of the apartments inside to see what they're like. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, I mean, they light it up as well. It's lit up in strange colours uh, during the, uh, the during the evenings as well. I think what why I'd, I'm not keen on it, and Matt, I'm sure would agree with this, is because it it kind of dwarfs the beautiful cathedral. You know, you've got this medieval cathedral which is fantastic. You can see it from a long way off. But what you can also see is this this brand new tower, uh, so very very different. 1950s and Middle Ages um, almost alongside each other.
0: It would be remiss of us not to mention the cathedral briefly. We're not going past it on this walk, but just how spectacular is the cathedral? It's larger in area than Notre Dame in Paris. I was reading recently, and it's just it's just spectacular and just an icon to troops of the First and Second World Wars. It just particularly in the First World War, the the, the troops that so many troops spent so much time in army on and the. The cathedral was obviously the highlight, slightly damaged during the war. But in the collection of the Australian War Memorial, for example, there are so many postcards and photographs that troops took of, of of the cathedral. And if you go and jump on the Australian War Memorial website and search their collection and type in Army on Cathedral, you will see hundreds of photos of troops in and around the cathedral. Just... Just an icon of the battlefields. It is, uh, and uh, it
1: still is a, an icon for lots of people. Uh, they have a, a light display during the summer on, on the front of it when it gets dark, which is spectacular. In my collection, for those who have listened to the podcast before, they'll know I'm a bit of a, a collector of Great War memorabilia, and I have a, a leaflet produced by a British padre, which is a guide to the cathedral. So you can—they were actually uh, handing these things out to the troops as they went into town. <laughs> Go and have a look at the cathedral rather than go to a brothel. I think was probably the instructions they were given, and uh, and given this uh, this this guidebook and off they off they went to go and have a look at the cathedral. And it's uh, it, yeah, it is spectacular.
0: It's well worth uh, if you're into, in the town, go and have a look. I'm sure those troops, Pete, found time to do both: <laughs> quick duck into the cathedral and then round the corner <laughs> to yeah. see a, to see a local madam. I certainly don't doubt that. Many of the accounts I've read, uh, they were very open about uh, about how they spent their leisure time, as you can well imagine. Uh, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other icon of the city is not just the cathedral, but the Somme River, of course, the iconic Somme River. Not a lot of the fighting in the First World War actually took place anywhere near the banks of the Somme. But um, obviously the whole area is named after the river and the river was an icon for the troops again. Uh, and the sun passes right through the centre of town. It, it
1: does indeed, and it it, it really uh, it splits the town uh, in a in a beautiful way. It runs through it. Uh, when we have uh, some of our groups in the t- in the town, we often eat by the side of the river. A lot of uh, restaurants down by the river. Uh, in the summer, you can go to the hortelages. <laughs> I always say this wrong. Hortelonages. That sounds better. What um, they are, they're, they're sometimes known as the floating gardens. They're not floating at all. They're little tiny islands uh, divided by uh, the river. The river is uh, flows out into a, a floodplain, I suppose, really. And these were for growing organic vegetables. Uh, they also grow flowers as well. And it's its very beautiful. You can get little punts, basically, and, and go around there, be, t- be taken around there. Or you can go on a, a bigger uh, trip on a, a slightly larger vessel. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's probably the second thing that people do. They go to the cathedral and they go uh, onto the, uh, onto these, uh, to go and look at these floating, uh, flower beds and uh, organic
0: vegetables. Do, have, do you sorry. enjoy that experience, Pete? Every time you've done it, do you, uh, enjoy that experience? You must've done it hundreds of times. How many times have you visited the hortillonnage? You know jolly well I've not been at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, You're too busy out on the battlefields. I am indeed. Yeah, I, I, I do fancy a trip, but I just don't quite seem to fit it in.
0: You should do it. I've, I've done it once. I did it the first time I visited the battlefields 20 years ago. Actually, geez, it is 20 years ago now. That's crazy to think. First time I visited the Western Front, I did it, and um, it was actually really lovely. It's, a, it's highly unusual. It's so French. It's highly unusual. It's all in French. You get in a little punt, and someone... I can't remember whether it was a motor or whether he rode us around... But you I think it was a little motored boat and you putt, putt putt around and there's farmers working on their little veggie patches, as you say, on little islands in the middle of the river. It's it's beautiful and very strange and very French. And the my fond memory of it was as we went out the guide was obviously it was all in French and the guide was asking wherever I was from. And it's a very French tourist attraction. It you, is. Don't get, it you, is. you don't get you don't get non French people coming there. And he was going around asking where everyone was from and most people were from Armion and maybe someone was from like Albert a little bit further in the Somme. And I remember one gentleman thrust out his chest and very proudly said he was from the Loire Atlantic. So he was from the Loire coast about two hours away. And he was very proud that he'd come so far. And everyone was like, oh, very good. And a light round of applause that this gentleman had traveled so far to come to on. And then they got to us. Where are you from? Australia. Whoa! <laughs> it was just one of those great moments of yeah. connection with the local people which I love when you travel. But it is a really bizarre and fascinating little thing. I've seen nothing like it anywhere else in the world. I can't imagine that farming on these minuscule little islands in the middle of the river is actually an economic prospect but they do it and they enjoy it and, and, and they go well and it's well worth doing when you go to Amiens. I think it's more of a hobbyist uh, farmers. I think uh, a lot of them go on. A, just about to mention on a
1: Saturday there's uh, there's there's the the market and the market uh, just beside the river and it, that's, it sells all the organic vegetables grown there. Uh, again, have I been? I've won't been past it a few times, but it's uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, uh, very popular for uh, for the local people to go and buy these uh, organic uh, vegetables. But you're absolutely right, Matt. It is a very very French. Uh, Outing, a very, very French day out, I think. So, Pete, leaving the Hôtel-en-Age, where to next? Yep, yeah, so just to put it so you understand, we turned right out of the railway station, down a slope, over the river, and now we're heading up a, a, a superb uh, uh, boulevard and uh, into an area known as Saint Pierre and the Boulevard de, de Beauville. And it's so wide. It's. I remember the first time I drove down here, I thought, surely they can't have planned this. And this would have been planned in the 1830s, I suppose, 1840s. And it's basically got, uh, I'll sort of explain how many lanes of traffic. You've got local traffic on the outsides on each side of this boulevard. You've then got a bus lane. And then you have two lanes on each side of uh, of, of day-to-day traffic moving, moving about. So just it i just found it extraordinary eight lanes of tra- of uh, eight lanes of highway uh, on a, a victorian boulevard and it, and i think that gives you an idea of how amiens was perceived at that time as they were developing the city this was this was going to be an all singing all dancing city with big wide boulevards lots of trees and it still is it's tree lined uh, up and down the sides the houses are are brick and uh, and not dissimilar to the type of house that you would possibly find in Britain at the same time. There are t- terrace rows, but with nice big houses uh, in, in amongst them as well. So it's it's a, a a nice shaded walk. We're walking up the side. It's quiet because we're away from the main road, even though it's a busy main road. It is a, a, the, the, one of the main routes into the city, from the north of the city anyway. Um, on our right-hand side, we're going to go uh, to a hospital called Hospital St. Victor, built about the roughly the same time, and it's part of the story. We've already mentioned that lots of prisoners escaped because it was a successful raid. Well, of course, they've got to hide. They've got to hide somewhere. And uh, the hospital, the the, the nurses and the doctors uh, saw these guys running down the streets, covered in in, uh, dust because, of course, the bombing had blown up dust everywhere. So they were very obviously the escaped prisoners. And what they did was they dragged quite a few into the hospital, put them into beds, wiped their faces to get the dust and hair to get the dust off them, pulled the blankets over their clothes... Because the Germans were fairly much hot on their on their tails and uh, and, and they pretended they were they were people in the hospital, so the hospital is part of the story. I tried to get learn a little bit more about the hospital and its age and when it was built, and again, very difficult. Couldn't find anything about it uh, online, so I can't add anything more than that. But it still exists. It's now not a hospital in that sense. I, th- I think it uh, looks after the elderly, and I think there's a training a training section of it uh, as well. So, but it still exists. And it's amazing what does still exist from this period. And and interestingly, we are at the side of the city that was heavily bombed. It was heavily uh, shelled, shall I say, not bombed, heavily shelled by the Germans in the First World War. We're far enough out of the centre that the bombing shouldn't be too bad uh, in this area, even though there was bombing in this area. But this is all still all exists. This is all Victorian uh, of that period, eighteen fifties uh, period. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely area. We're going to then go up to a, a roundabout at the top. So this is we walked uh, quite a way. We walked a few kilometres now and hit the roundabout at the top, and we have the old proverbial McDonald's on there. You can't you can't get it wrong. There's always a McDonald's, uh, and we're going to turn right, and this is the road that would take us to Albert. And onto the battlefields of the First World War. It's called Avenue de la Défense Passive. Which means that somewhere along here, and I'm not quite sure where it is, there would have been underground uh, bunkers. Because when you see la Défense Passive, it's talking about after the Second World War, when France didn't want to be involved in the Cold War, it hadn't joined NATO, and it it started to build, as well as having a fairly strong army, but it started to build an awful lot of shelters for its civilian population, so I think that's where the Avenue de la Fence passive comes in, the name comes in. And then very quickly, we're actually going to come upon the the prison. The prison is on our left-hand side, it's actually number 85 uh, in Avenue de la Fence Passive, um, built in 1904. So I could find a little bit about the, the story of the building of the prison. So built in 1904, still in use now. Um, it's uh, It had 707 prisoners uh, were within it during the, the raid in 1944. And there's now only 326 prisoners that are, are at any one time in the prison. That's how many uh, it can cope with. So obviously they were packed in a bit tighter during 1944 under the, the German occupation. Um, and it's got 252 cells still to this day, so it's I think it's a remand prison at the, at the moment. Now, I always get my clients, when I'm we're actually having a look at it, we stop out here and get our cameras out, but I always make it clear, don't loiter too long with your cameras when you're outside a prison, because they don't not very keen on people taking pictures of of, of uh, prisons from across the other side of the road, so I always get us in quite tight up to the wall, so we can go and have a look at where the wall was, has been marked, so the pointing is, has changed, so you can see where this section of the wall was blown out and there's a, a plaque there, commemorating the fact that 717 prisoners uh, were in the prison. 100. I'll just give you these the uh, the facts because it's just interesting to get them uh, out the way here. 717 prisoners. 102 of those were killed during the raid, so there was uh, there was a considerable loss of life from the bombing. 74 were wounded, but 258 escaped, uh, and of that 258, 79 were actual uh, resistance or political prisoners. Um, sadly. Uh, Two thirds of those will be uh, be recaptured fairly quickly. But of course, that involved an awful lot of uh, German units uh, arriving to help in in, in rounding them up and trying to find them. One of the other aspects, while the mosquitoes were attacking the prison, uh, one of the the groups of mosquitoes actually attacked the railway station to uh, try and delay uh, German soldiers being brought in to to assist in
0: recapturing them. So they try and think it through uh, and they attacked the railway station as well. Well, Pete, we're going to talk about the raid in a little bit of detail now because we're here at the site, at the, at the prison. Just before we do, I wanted to – you mentioned that that long walk down the boulevard and something I just wanted to add is that Armion is a, quite a captivating city and I think on that stroll down that boulevard, that's a great place to sum it up. I'd, I'd say there's a, a, definitely an element of faded glory about Armion that there's some massive, gorgeous old houses, mostly, mostly houses, not not too many in the public building space, but certainly private houses – Immense private houses, just beautiful old, as you say, Victorian 19th century constructions. Gorgeous, you know, that beautiful French style with what we call sandstone in Australia. It's probably not, it's a different type of stone, but stone and brick and just some absolutely stunning um, houses. Again, a little bit faded these days. But um, just a, the, the architecture of the town is really quite captivating. You can spend a long time roaming the streets of Armion, just admiring the buildings, can't
1: you? Well, I, I do. When uh, when we're staying there and uh, we've had our evening meal, uh, people do different things. I, I do tend to go to a bar as well, but I always try and fit in somewhere, whether it be in the morning or in the evening, a quick walk around the town, and I try and go to an area that I've not walked before. Um, and what I'm looking for is... I, I actually quite like the 1950s architecture of having knocked it with the railway station, Uh, but there's an interesting aspect, is the damage on the First World, uh, after the First World War was rebuilt in the 1930s and then the Second World War in the 1950s now 1930s and 1950s architecture is very similar, so you can actually wander about and I'm trying to figure out whether that is uh, a rebuild from the 1950s or a rebuild from the 1930s so it's very interesting and I enjoy walking about and looking how they've fitted in these rebuilt houses and it's when you do that you realize how much of the the city was destroyed in either war there's an awful lot that this sadly is missing also after the war, in the 1950s, the French did take a, a, an opportunity to do a lot of house clearing, a clear, clearing of, of what they would have seen as slum areas. So I think it's quite sad in some ways that the beautiful cathedral, and I always compare it to York, uh, it's the nearest big cathedral to where, where I, I came from uh, in the UK, and and York has the old houses around the cathedral which really kind of sits it very firmly in, in history. So you can see how where the people lived around the the cathedral but here in Amiens it's either rebuilt in a style that looks a little bit like um, but most of it was destroyed and what wasn't destroyed was actually cleared in slum clearances in in the 1950s I think it's a great shame they didn't save more of the old city so having said that uh, as Matt was saying there are still some very beautiful buildings around and it's well worth
0: having a having a walk around Amiens if you have the opportunity. One of the most famous houses relates to the first world war and it's it's, it's a novel that that depicts this house which was written I think in the 70s or the 80s but um, but a very uh, you know a good account of the First World War called Birdsong by Sebastian Fawkes and it was set in Amiens for much of it and a specific house that the, the, the key characters lived in uh, and that house was based on a real house which is still there which is on I think it's the Rue de Conge which is just around the corner from the restaurants down on the River Somme um, and it's a grand old again in some places a little bit ramshackle but a beautiful old house covered in ivy and and just a dramatic sight on the street. So if you've read Birdsong and enjoyed that book, you can actually go and see the house that inspired... Inspired the story. I, you're you're not a, as big a fan of Birdsong as I am. I think, Pete. I was just going to say that. Uh, no, I'm not. Birdsong uh, not my
1: favourite. It, it, it exaggerates everything. I don't like it very much. It's uh, mainly dealing with the tunnel war, uh, and it exaggerates an awful lot. And, and even worse, the BBC made a, a, like a drama out of it, and they, they took that exaggeration even further. So uh, I think it really spoiled it. But but what I did enjoy with Birdsong is the descriptions of Amiens before the First World War, and I thought they were excellent, and uh, it really gave you a feeling of what it was like and so yes you can uh, uh, it's it's an interesting book to read and, and I would recommend that you read it it's a, it's a well known book and uh,
0: he's a very good author I have to say So read the book and then go and have dinner down by the river and a nice bottle of French wine and then wander around the corner and see the uh, see the house that inspired the whole story Let's get to the prison Pete let's get to the raid I mean you've covered it very very well I think we have a really good understanding of what was going on but um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to imagine standing on this street I mean obviously you wouldn't have wanted to be standing on this street in February 1944 and see these mosquitoes come screaming in I mean, the Mosquito as an aircraft is just an iconic Second World War plane. I love the Mosquito, the the, the idea that it's basically two very large wings strapped to two monstrous engines and then just a very fast, very agile plane. Yeah, it is. Uh, Old
1: Wood, of course, which is one of the the more interesting aspects of it. And I think it was my father's uh, favourite favourite aeroplane. I remember as a boy getting the Airfix kit and and making a a Mosquito. Uh, A great aircraft and actually quite long lived because it was fast. Uh, Even when the jet engines came in, the Mosquitoes continued to be built and continued to be used after the the Second World War. So this is... um, I'll give you a little bit of details of who it is that's attacking. So it's 140 wing of the RA, uh, RAF Second Tactical Air Force, and they were based at a place called Hunsdon uh, in Hertfordshire, and they were selected to to carry out the raid using Mosquito, mosquito FB Mark Fives. Uh, uh, so uh, that was the one that we're using, um, and it's going to be 18 Mosquitoes from Number 464 Squadron uh, and uh, Number 487 Squadron, which is a New Zealand squadron. So the way New Zealanders in, involved in uh, in this raid, um, the chap that was uh, going to lead them was Air Vice Marshal Basil Embry, but he was taken uh, out of the uh, out of the raid at the last minute because he was also planning the D-Day uh, uh, landings that were coming up, and it was felt that it perhaps wasn't a good idea to have him flying over over uh, Europe and occupied Europe with all that information in his head. So uh, Group Captain uh, Percy Charles Picard, DSO and two bars. I mean, this guy. Was was your, your film star of uh, of the time, he's the one that it, it, uh, is going to lead the lead the um, uh, film s- uh, star style, I should say. That's the kind of feel that you get about him. But actually, he was a film star, uh, which is uh, which is fascinating because uh, in 1941 he'd taken part in a film called uh, Target for Tonight, which again another of my father's films that I watched with him, and it was a, a propaganda film that was uh, intended to be a propaganda film, but it became a box office hit. And it was about a Whitley bomber. Uh, no, sorry, it was about uh, a bomber raid uh, against uh, Germany. Um, and uh, yeah, so he was he was in in that. Uh, so uh, yeah, another uh, another interesting uh, aspect. Um, he was uh, he was also involved in what was called the Bruneville raid, which was a, a raid uh, again another famous raid of uh, paratroopers being dropped on uh, to take out uh, a um, radar. Uh, network uh, And to bring back uh, parts of it to investigate what the Germans were doing as far as radar was concerned. And after that, he'd been involved in Lysanders, which are a, a very light aircraft used for uh, dropping SOE, uh, the spies and the people that are gathering information. Into France, so so his life was one that of of, of you'd have, you have to say of excitement and partying. He was a bit of a party animal as well. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he must have been an interesting character. He's one of those one of those guys that had he survived, I, I wonder what he would have gone on to uh, to do.
0: It wasn't the mosquitoes weren't just tasked with blowing out the walls. I mean, that was a very precise raid that they were involved in blowing out the walls and blowing out the the the, the hole in the side of the prison so the prisoners could escape. But there was also, you were telling me, Pete, that there was a second instruction if the raid wasn't successful. And this is a pretty grim aspect of the whole thing. What was going to happen if they didn't succeed in breaching the walls?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting story because... Uh, a French historian started looking into why the raid had actually taken place in its entirety. The belief had always been that the resistance had asked for help uh, in the sense of trying to free these prisoners, uh, and uh, the the story then was attached to that, that one of the prisoners was important because he knew some of the details of the Normandy landings. Um, but when we started looking at it in detail, when this French historian started looking at it in detail, he couldn't find any any. Anywhere where there were any resistance cells or resistance uh, fighters or units in France had actually requested assistance. And what he did find was that it, the request was coming from Britain. Could they uh, attack the prison? So that's the first part of the story that's slightly odd. Uh, what Matt was referring to is, is the final instructions for the mosquitoes. If they'd been unable to breach the walls, if they'd been unable to see no sign of anybody coming out of the prison, then the final flight of mosquitoes had been tasked with flattening the prison and completely destroying it. And so yeah, so again, we're back to this story. Was there somebody in the prison that really was important uh, to the Normandy landings, who, the, who they really didn 't want the Germans to uh, to interrogate and certainly that's the, the implication why else would you do that, why else would you say flatten the prison, kill everybody if you can't breach the walls so we well, don't really know, you have to say we don't really know what the uh, maybe we will in the future when more and more files become available but at the present time we're not really sure why the, the raid took place, all we can say was the precision bombing was, was perfect well actually speaking, strictly speaking it's not quite true, the bombs were actually fused, I think Cameron how many seconds but it was too long and the bombs were going through the target wall that they were supposed to hit going through the buildings and actually detonating on the front and so interestingly, when we go and look at the hole blown through the wall, it's one of the, the, the holes at the front onto the main road. Well, in fact, they were trying to take out the walls on the back, but the bombs were going right the way through before they, they actually detonated. So one another interesting aspect. But it, no matter what, it still worked. They successfully took out the accommodation block. They took out the uh, the, the observation towers and, and everything else that they needed to do. So uh, it was a very, very successful uh, raid. Just to add a, something else, there were also uh, typhoons operating here, protecting the mosquitoes. So while they were taking part in the raid, there were mos- uh, there was a mosquito squadron circling above uh, and attacking likely targets uh,
0: as well. So they weren't just left to their own devices. The mosquitoes. One of these interesting aspects, Pete, that we discussed before the uh, before we started recording was that uh, you, you mentioned to me um, Henry Mossin was a was a resistance fighter who was in the prison and he refused to leave. Um, when the walls were breached, because he was worried about retaliation. So it does again start to paint this picture that perhaps the raid was not as as successful or necessary as we've been led to believe. And and you even mentioned that after the raid, he uh, he called it an unnecessary bloodbath. The uh, the idea that they would they would do that. And I do understand that. It does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? If we don't have a specific reason for it, we say we've got these prisoners there. We're going to bomb the prison. We're going to kill a decent chunk of them. Some are going to escape, but two thirds of those are going to be recaptured anyway. You kind of ask yourself, what was the point? What 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 was going on? What there, there is obviously more to the story than we know. Uh, I think uh, I think the things that I take from it is
1: I think it's possible that there is somebody very important in there that we still don't know who he is. Uh, I think the other thing, perhaps, uh, would be that they wanted to see if this would work because they're going to go on and, and do several other precision uh, bombing attacks against various various buildings and things in in other areas of France and other countries uh, so i think that's part of it it's testing out if the, is this going to work can we use planes for this absolute you know um, uh, uh, s- s- detailed almost scalpel like taking out a a, a building so I think that there's there's an element of that as well, but but I think you're right. I I don't think we really have got to the bottom of the story yet, and I think we haven't got enough documentation from uh, uh, from MI five, MI six that would that will start to tell us what
0: really the Red was about. It's fascinating these stories, particularly from the Second World War, where at the end of the war we think we know the story, and then as time goes on, we realise we actually don't know very much about it at all, and the. The gaps in the story become larger as time goes on. So rather know more about the war as we would normally expect to. We we actually know less and less as time goes on. So it's 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 exciting though. It's one of those stories that I think is yet to be written. I have no doubt that at some stage in the future a historian will uncover the documents that reveal exactly what was going on, and um and we'll do a follow up podcast no doubt at that point because I I would be fascinated to know what the what the true story is because it doesn't quite add up does it it just it just doesn't make sense it doesn't pass the pub test as they say here that if you're standing around in the pub talking about it it just does it, it there's there's just too much to the story we don't know like why the most important question why in the hell did this occur in the first place but just a, a fascinating story we should talk about um what happened to um to the group commander percy pickard what what happened to him specifically because we know he didn't survive the raid
1: no, well, sadly, he was tasked to hang about to, to do the... the I, I should say, again, this raid was well-recorded. One of the planes was carrying cameras, so it was tasked to photograph and record so that there was a record. And again, odd. Yes, we are photographing, but this is a very specific raid, and they wanted a record to be brought back of uh, of exactly how it had gone. You can actually look at those pictures. If you go online, you'll find some of the pictures taken by one of the mosquitoes. Uh, Picard uh, uh, was hanging about to give the final... Yep, that's okay, that's uh, that. Uh, been successful, and uh, as he turned to to leave, his uh, plane was uh, was attacked. Uh, I think it was a, a focke wolf uh, from one of the the local. There are quite a few fighter stations uh, around in the area, and the rear of his plane was was literally shot off. His his rear tail was, was shot off, and he went straight in uh, into the into the ground. So him and his uh, uh, his navigator were were both killed and in fact i'm just quickly looking up and seeing uh, how many people lost their lives well in fact one of the typhoon pilots uh, w- was uh, was shot down and he was killed at, uh, sergeant h s brown uh, another New Zealander called uh, Lieutenant Richard Webb Sampson, who was a navigator in the, uh, the second of the Mosquitos to be lost. Uh, the pilot survived and was captured as a POW. And then we have uh, uh, John Allen Broadley, flight lieutenant, and he's again another New Zealander, and he was the navigator uh, to, uh, to Picard. And they both uh, sadly lost their lives. Now, interestingly, they're not all buried in the same uh, the same place. And that's the next place we're we're actually going to go to is where Picard and his navigator are are buried. Uh, and they're buried literally just just round the corner. We walk up the street a little bit further, and uh, we'll get uh, to uh, a cemetery. It's a great big civil cemetery. It's on the same side as the prison, on the left hand side, and it's uh, the cemetery Saint Pierre. Um, and uh, uh, there's a Commonwealth Wargrave section known as St. Pierre Cemetery Amiel and uh, it's uh, I say it's a, a Commonwealth Wargrave cemetery literally attached to the Sybil Cemetery, obviously started in the First World War as you'd expect this was a, an evacuation centre for the wounded so all of the soldiers that are w- were buried within there are soldiers that died of their wounds and then we have a Second World War section as well and uh, they're, they're buried uh, there. I, I always think it's quite sad they're not side by side, you'd like to think that the pilot and the navigator, uh, the bodies must have been recovered roughly at the same time, but they're not side by side. They're in different rows. They're almost behind each other, um, but they're, they're buried in there.
0: Well, Pete, it's a fascinating story. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of angles here, and I I, I don't actually feel we've obviously conclusively told the story. Because as we say, there's, there's so many gaps in the story, but it's, 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 it's almost the mystery of the story makes it, uh, makes it so tantalising and, and makes it worthwhile walking past that prison and having a look. And as we say, visitors who are listening to this podcast who go to the Somme will, will, will go past the prison many times as they drive in and out of Armion. So it's, it's again, the, the hidden gems of history that are right there in front of us if we look for them. Just, a, just an extraordinary tale and an extraordinary walk.
1: Uh, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting story because it, it has been very well covered and very well written up and that's what's so interesting about it is with so many historians and people have looked at it over the years you know we even know the the name of the of the German fighter pilot who who uh, shot down the uh, Picard's plane know, there's, there's so much information but we still don't know exactly why the raid took place so it's a uh, it is it is fascinating and I, I would uh, yeah I would I would ask that if you're interested and you've enjoyed it then then go online and see what you can find out yourself you'll, you'll get hooked it's a, a, just a fascinating story.
0: Well, Pete, thank you once again for uh, for this walk across the battlefields. It's always a great pleasure, and uh, look forward to doing it again with you next week.
1: Yep, looking forward to it, Matt.
0: All at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.